It is Tuesday, November the 8th, 2022. Welcome into episode 62 of Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. It's a production at John Boy Media. It's David Cohn. It's James Smythe. It's myself, Justin Shackle. Producer Dan Rourke here as well. Uh, this episode is presented by Rapsodo, the 2022 baseball season. It's officially in the books. The Houston Astros, they close out the World Series pick up their second title in six years. They win game six over the Phillies Saturday night at Minute Maid Park. We'll uh, we'll put a bow on game six. We'll touch on some of the stuff that we heard from the Yankees late last week, and we'll get into the Edwin Diaz signing that broke the day after the World Series concluded. So the offseason put into full swing by Steve Cohen and the Mets. Uh, guys, welcome to the offseason. Uh, it doesn't feel like there's any time to catch your breath here. Away we go, a hot stove season. Yeah, hop stove season and a lot of anticipation. Big free agents out there. Aaron Judge, the headliner, obviously. Nothing happens until he signs, right? I mean, it seems like the whole industry is kind of waiting for Aaron Judge to figure out what what's going to happen with him. But also the new rules. I'm excited for next year. Pitch clock, bigger bases. Uh, however you feel about the shift, there's going to be a limited shifts. or ban on the shifts next year. So I'm really interested to see how that's going to play out. I mean, James Smythe and I have talked about this a lot over the years about pace of play and you know what a pitch clock would do uh, well it's here and uh, next year is going to be big changes for the industry baseball is a 365 days out of the year uh, sport and uh baseball world never sleeps we've got the gm meetings coming up already something that you just brought up david so the question just popped into my head do you think there's a player that's going to be hitting free agency this offseason where you're going to have him sign somewhere, and we're going to hear the team say, well, based on the new rules that are coming into 2023, we really think, you know, player X can can make an impact for us. It is interesting, and that's going to be part of the evaluation process. It has to be, in particular with relievers. Is this guy like uh, Kinley Jansen slow in terms of his work? Uh, you know, can he can he thrive? Is this going to be a problem? Yeah, it's a it's a factor. It's something that everybody's trying to figure out in the industry. Who works fast? Who doesn't? Looking at Framber Valdez, the left-handed great starter for Houston, he's a slow worker. Now he's not a free agent, and he's going to be back. But everybody's going to have to make adjustments. And this walking around the mound, rubbing up the baseball, you know, what, what, what's the line? What's the line from uh, from from the famous baseball movie Lollygagging? You lollygag here, you lollygag there. You know, I mean that's Boulder. Well, yeah. Durham, there you go. There's, there's no more lollygagging in baseball. So uh, if you're a pitcher and you've been lollygagging the last few years, you're going to have to change your ways. You mentioned Framber Valdez. Let's put a bow on this World Series. Concluded Saturday night with Game 6. Astros beat the Phillies 4-1, to one, and they pick up their second title in six seasons. And pitching center stage yet again. We talked about it ahead of Game 6. Kind of felt like Houston figured out how to pitch to this Phillies lineup and, and Framber Valdez got locked in with that sinker curveball combo. Big storyline in this game six, Zach Wheeler taken out at just 70 pitches uh, after putting two on in the sixth inning. Rob Thompson takes him out, brings in Alvarado. We saw what happened with Jordan Alvarez's home run, which probably hasn't landed yet. Uh, is it second guessing at this point, guys, or should teams trust their best pitchers more often? That is always the age old question in today's game. The modern game is all about bullpen management. Did you leave him in too long? Did you take him out too soon? Is he your best pitcher? 
first and third in that situation. It's an elimination game. Your backs are against the wall. I don't know. You've got a left-handed reliever that throws almost a hundred miles an hour. You know, uh, I, I, that's kind of, a, kind of not a bad move. If you think about it, you know, with your backs against the wall, because if you leave Wheeler in there and he ends up giving it up, then that's a bigger second guess in my mind than it is the other way around because of Alvarado stuff. It's just top shelf. I mean, the, the pitch he hit out, even though it was down the middle was 99 miles an hour, almost a hundred miles an hour. So, you know, give Alvarez credit. I mean, he, he worked the count, got a fastball that he can handle and he did not miss it after having struggled for the majority of the postseason, really since that big home run he hit, hit against Seattle in the first round. So yeah, you know, Rob Thompson did a great job of managing, you know, that particular one, you could argue both sides of that. And, but I have no problem lefty on lefty bringing in a guy with that kind of stuff in a game that you just cannot, you can't, you cannot lose. Rob Thompson managed a great postseason, And one of the big things everyone praised him for all October long was how he was aggressive in managing the bullpen, bringing in his best guys in the right spots. It didn't work out this time. It's first and third with one out and you're up one, nothing. Jordan Alvarez is coming up to the plate. I need a strikeout pronto. Jose Alvarado had the sixth highest K rate in the national league among pitchers with 50 plus innings. He's my guy to get a K. Jordan, he hits lefties, he hits righties, he hits, I'm sure if there's ambidextrous pitchers out there, he hit, he's hitting them too. I need a K. That's the big spot to bring in my guy. I'm going to him. If he hits it to the moon, he hits it to the moon. He could have done the same thing against Wheeler. I don't really care about the 70 pitch count. It's more about the situation. If it was a runner at first or a runner at second, one out, there's one thing. The tying run is a third base. I need a K. Part of me feels like, uh, yeah, I, I kind of subscribe in that situation to maybe Wheeler going out on his shield. But look, uh, Dusty Baker made the opposite decision in game one, left Justin Verlander in there a, a little too long. And we saw what happened there. So um, they're, they're never there's never going to be like the right answer, the same answer applying to the situation. Uh, each case is going to be its own isolated case. And I, yeah, I think, look, Jordan Alvarez got all of that pitch in a situation where a strikeout was needed, like James said, could have easily have happened against your starting pitcher and the guy who's classified as your best pitcher in Zach Wheeler as well. Rob Thompson did a, a terrific job. So it was, it's kind of tough to see him uh, get buried there for that decision on Twitter. But um, that's why we, I guess, you know, more and more people are probably staying away from Twitter these days. Uh, that's another topic for, for another day. But uh, with this World Series here, uh, you know, the Astros since 2017, a much different team. They got, they still have some personnel from that team, but overall, you know, two World Series titles, four American League pennants. They made it to the ALCS six consecutive times. Would you call the Astros a dynasty? No. Uh, I think maybe if they win next year, maybe. Um, but I think two World Series, six years apart, Four pennants, that's very impressive. Um, I feel like you need, if you're going to have two titles, they got to be closer together or Thank have you. a third or fourth <laughs> championship. I remember it was it was a big debate when the Giants won three out of five and people weren't calling them a dynasty because they didn't win any consecutive. It was mm -hmm. title, not title, not title. And I feel like that they won a third championship and I don't even know if they officially got unofficially got called the dynasty. So I think it's uh, way too premature for that. Um, and the elephant in the room being 
2017 is a uh, is very much a tainted uh, championship considering the gigantic sign stealing scandal that people are trying to retroactively absolve now. That's always going to be the elephant in the room, right? No yeah. matter what you do, no matter what you talk about in this uh, the six year run. I think you know Jason Stark, great writer, Hall of Famer, wrote a great article on this topic. You know, in terms of you know where does this team rank in terms over the last six years? And if you look collectively at their record over the six year period, it's pretty impressive. You know, the, the, the overall winning percentage of this team over the six year period is among the best in, in the history of the game. So, yeah, it's it's eye opening. It's something that you need to kind of look twice at. Uh, 2017 is 2017. Everybody's drawn their own conclusions on that. However you feel about it. We know how Brian Cashman feels about it. We know how the Yankees that were there in 2017 feel about it. Certainly the Yankee fan base. But with all of that being said, you have to give them credit. They keep churning it out. Uh, they suffered the penalties from 2017, including, you know, fines and loss of draft picks. They still come up with great player development stories. The rookie shortstop is at the top of the list. It's how, did, where did he come from? They were trying to sign back Carlos Correa. I don't even, I mean, they knew they had a good prospect. I don't think they knew they had the rookie of the year there or the, the postseason hero. So you have to give them credit for the way they've developed talent in particular, their pitching staff and some of their international free agent signings of guys that were a little bit older out of the prospect range from Valdez falls into that. Um, certainly uh, uh, Christian Javier falls in that as well. Um, um, these are guys that weren't top notch prospects. They were 18 years old past the point of when those um, young Latin guys usually get signed out of the Dominican. They're usually signed at 16 or, or around that age that are given top dollars. So they deserve a ton of credit. They're scouting across the board, international free agent signing out of the box thinking traditional draft and sign and development from Kyle Tucker and right field to, to Jeremy Pena at shortstop. They deserve a lot of credit and their overall record over the six year period is eye opening. They are an unbelievably great team. They won 106 games in the regular season and they mow through the playoffs. The 106 wins are tied for the 11th most by any team that's ever won the world series. Still got to say, even though the fun part of it is that there isn't uh, a specific criteria for a dynasty, <laughs> Uh, but I still think that they are short of that for now, but I think uh, they will be as good a bet as any to win next year and the year after that. So I think uh, it's still an open-ended question right now. Yeah. As good of an organization as there can be in baseball right now, they were the best team in the sport and the best team won, which is always nice to see as well. I'm with you, James. I'd hesitate calling them a dynasty um, with, with respect to what they have done. Like, I don't think, ALCS appearances and pennants warrants uh, a dynasty. You know, people are throwing uh, the phrase around modern dynasty. I don't know what that is. Like dynasty is the ultimate level you can get to as a team in sport. Two titles, six years apart. When I think of dynasty, James, I'm along your you know way of thinking. Um, maybe back to back, three and four years. I think of the Warriors, uh, the Patriot, David, your Yankees in the 90s, uh, the Dallas Cowboys. This is a you know an elite level inner circle of elite. It's not the Buffalo Bills. Uh, all those teams that I mentioned there that you know they won three titles in four years at the minimum. I think you need a minimum of back to back titles or, or three in four years. So maybe maybe our standards are too high, James. But yeah, that's how I feel about that one when we talk about dynasties in sports. If you are a baseball player, in particular a baseball pitcher, and you want to take your game to the next level. 
The Repsoto 2.0 unit is the best in the business. It is remarkable. It gives you all the data that you would ever want to analyze your pitching, to get into pitching design, whether you're studying your spin rate, your release point, the vertical and horizontal movement on your pitches that really everybody's using nowadays. Who's anybody? Major League Baseball teams use it. Colleges use it. Amateurs use it. You can get this unit and it can really help you develop your talent develop your skills, and to understand exactly what you're doing with the baseball. The Rapsodo machine shows you exactly how your, your, your pitches move, the spin on it, the movement. You can use that to help design your pitches. It is a remarkable unit. I highly recommend it. You just have to go to rapsodo.com slash jomboy and click in the link in the description to get a special discount up to $1,000 off of Rapsodo's pitching 2.0 unit. Go get it. You want to find out how to pitch design? You want to find out how to do it like the big leaguers are doing it? That's where you go. Go get it. Get your discount. Get the Rapsodo 2.0 unit. Man, pretty far removed from those late 90s Yankees dynasties. Uh, brings up to our, our next topic, guys. The Yankees end of season press conference. It, it happened on Friday of last week during uh, games five and six of the World Series. Safe to say... And this Yankees ALCS sweep left a bad taste in the mouths of Yankee fans. Uh, Aaron Boone and Brian Cashman's words on Friday, they didn't do too much to cure it here. And this is somewhat of, of a delicate, uh, delicate topic because we all know where our bread is buttered here. But it is hard to disagree at the current moment. It seems like there is a disconnect between Yankee fans and the Yankees. Was there something to that there on Friday? Was that like the latest chapter in all of this? You know, a couple of things that I noticed. Um, Aaron Boone, I thought, handled the, the pitching moves during the postseason very well. Uh, he acknowledged that a couple of the moves were, were definitely second-guessable and, and valid questions. I think he handled a lot of that very well. He always has. Aaron Boone's tenure as a manager has always been open to those sorts of things. I remember second guessing a move he made in his first year in the first series in Toronto. I think when he ended up walking the bases loaded, uh, walking Josh Donaldson. And then uh, I think uh, the, the big first baseman at that time hit a big grand slam home run. I second guessed him, talked to him the next day and he said, no, bring it on. These are questions that need to be asked. He's his broadcasting career background certainly understands that. So I thought he was pretty good in that regard, as far as, you know, a lot of people, including Michael Kay, went after him for some of the pitching decisions he made, uh, in, including when you're down 2-0 and bringing in Lou Trevino in that one spot. Uh, he was, I thought he handled that very well. Hey, these are valid questions. The part I didn't like was the whole 2004, uh, the comeback, uh, the videos that were sent out by the, the mental conditioning coach. I wish that would have stayed in-house. The fact that that got out, I thought, was a little bit disrespectful to the fan base. I thought that could have been acknowledged better in the, in the press conference. They were a little too defensive on that question. It's not that hard just to say, hey, you know what? With the benefit of hindsight, we didn't factor in, you know, the fan base or some fans might not, might not want to see this or be upset by it. You know what? Our bad. You know, maybe we, we should have thought that through a little more carefully instead of throwing it out there to the public and admitting this is what was going on behind the scenes. It was all innocent. We we're trying to pump up our troops. Everybody gets it. We know what you're trying to do there. You're down 3-0. You're trying to inspire your troops. That's what mental conditioning coaches do. Got it. Get it. Fine. But there is a big but here. And, and that should have been acknowledged. You know, I thought they were a little too defensive on that part of it. Shouldn't have been that big a deal. The best route is always just to admit it. 
hit it straight on and admit, Hey, you know what? You know, maybe we should have rethought that. Maybe, you know, maybe that was a mistake and, and that's as simple as it can be. And, and it would have handled that situation a little better instead of, I thought they were a little too defensive in, in, on that particular area that that really kind of riled up the fan base. I think fans could argue that they were also maybe a little too defiant, maybe a little too defensive on the topic of the left side of their infield. You know, the, the trade with the Minnesota Twins that took place in March of this year, they continued to defend uh, IKF. They continued to defend uh, Josh Donaldson. Um, you know, before I get your thoughts on this, this was something that jumped out at me because I think this is one thing that fans need to understand. And I'm not saying the entire fan base, but if you are someone who was looking for Aaron Boone or Brian Cashman to kind of drag players like Donaldson IKF through the mud at the end of season press conference, you, you need to change your, your thinking a bit here because yeah, you want changes immediately, but if you are the Yankees, like it makes little to zero sense. I shouldn't say little, it makes zero sense to say on uh, November the 4th, how a certain player is going to fit into their plans for the following season. You, you wanted to hear like, okay, Josh Donaldson, no, he didn't meet expectations. Definitely not playing third base for us in 2023. Like that, that's not happening. Uh, you know, IKF couldn't cut it. No way. He's our shortstop next year. That's not happening here. Pro sport teams kind of don't operate that way. It would be, be reckless to do so before the offseason process really even begins uh, on the flip side. Uh, the Yankees kind of have been pushing out the same messages and phrases at the same end of season press conference for too many years in a row now. So like what, what wasn't said that you thought could be said to ease the feelings of fans? I don't think there's anything that could have been said to tell you the truth. I mean, <laughs> maybe things have been handled a little bit better. I'm interested in James's opinion on this and really you too, Shaq is long time, you know, the baseball people have covered this team and, been fans of this team in your childhood as well. I mean, everybody's got their own perspective on this. You know, to me, the overview is the process-oriented situation that they always talk about with the Yankees. Brian Cashman is famous for saying, you know what? I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm smart enough to know what I don't know. And I've surrounded myself with the best people that I can find in the industry, top to bottom. He's built up the analytics department. He's built, re sort of rebuilt the minor league system, top to bottom. Everything's uniform now all the technology, all the investments. We are, have a process that we trust that's in place. I think the questions are, you know, over the overall decision-making. It's not just about the trade, uh, uh, you know, last year for the left side of the infield, kind of Falefa, the decision-making there, staying out of the free agent market for shortstops, Josh Donaldson brought in, you know, those decisions, you can't devalue your assets. You're right, Jack. You can't just go to the postseason press conference and devalue Josh Donaldson when you might want to trade him. You don't know. Same with Kiner Falefa. You, you can't just bomb these guys out and then try to try to, to, to build them up in a trade scenario that might come up later in the offseason. Secondly, to me, the question is, is the overall decision-making process. Over the last six years, we get it. Trust the process. We like our process. It, it can't be too results-oriented because there's a random variance of things, especially the crapshoot of a postseason. Got it. Understood. James Smythe and I talk about this all the time in terms of numbers, analytics, Random variance. Got it. To me, the, the, you juxtapose their decision-making and their philosophy with Dave Dombrowski in Philadelphia. And are you a blue chip oriented acquisition model that Dombrowski is? And has that served him well, or are we trust the process and kind of spread the money out 
and we're not going to go overboard, you know, in terms of uh, just acquiring blue chip players when, you know, okay, now we've got six years to compare. Okay. We had a shot. They had a shot. Now, Brian Cashman would refute this because he has more information. He'd say, wait a minute. We didn't sign Bryce Harper because of X, Y, and Z. This was our organization standing at the time. And these are the reasons why we didn't, but nonetheless, the comparison's there. Bryce Harper's killing it in Philadelphia. Same with Manny Machado. Well, we didn't sign Manny Machado because of X, Y, and Z. I got it. You know, you have a process. You have a lot of decisions to make, but Manny Machado's killing it in San Diego. The same when Justin Verlander was available in 2017, the original 17, the original trade. Well, you, you don't understand. They were asking for too much in our top prospect. You had to be in the room. I get it. But nonetheless, that's three decisions right there. Justin Verlander in 2017, both Harper and Machado are blue chip players. And that those are the type of people that, that New York really loves to sink their teeth into that are stars. That's something that George Steinbrenner understood. Puts fannies in the seat, superstar power, the Reggie Jackson model. That's been a complete flip, the philosophy of the organization. And that's fine. You can argue that. And you just keep standing by your guns and keep going for next year. And hopefully you turn it around next year. We get it. But the overall philosophy of the model is the thing that's kind of being challenged now by the Yankee fan base. And it's understandable. That's what you're always going to be measured by. Hey, we could have signed Harper. Why didn't we? Well, we traded for Giancarlo Stanton. Got it. Could have signed Manny Machado. We didn't because it was too much money. We had to sign Garrett Cole. Okay, but you're still going to be measured against those decisions on down the road and how they worked out. And that's the way the fan base thinks. Right or wrong, fair or foul, that's just the way it is. That's what's going on right now with the Yankee fan base. Do you think that they could stand to be a little more transparent in their reasoning when, when it's being, when they're being confronted with it or are they on the right path in, in that regard? Or, and I, you know what, on the flip side, like, are they so insulated into their process, their decision-making that maybe they don't hear all this noise? Well, I, I don't, I think they hear the noise. I don't think they pay a lot of attention to it. I think they understand, you know, uh, that, as I said, you know, Brian Cashman has hired as many good people around him as he can. He gets everybody's input. It's a collective decision, but he has veto power at the end. He, along with the ownership in terms of the, the overall budget and whether they were strategically duckied under the luxury tax one year to reset the luxury tax, what do the financials really look like? The problem with the Yankees is, is everybody knows that they're an, a fabulously wealthy team, that they do exceptionally well. Everybody heard about the yes ratings all year long. Aaron Judge's 62 home run chase just lit the Yankee universe on fire. Uh, Yankee Stadium was the place to be down the stretch run this year. Uh, the yes network was the place to be to watch this happen. So people understand that this is a, an organization that's making a ton of money, that's doing exceptionally well. And, and the decision-making behind that certainly is always going to be, why didn't we sign Bryce Harper? Why didn't we sign Manny Machado or the next best golden free agent? Why are we getting away from this blue chip superstar model that the Yankees were kind of built on in the past? And I'm, I'm not, I'm, this isn't as a critique in my mind, but I, and to me, it sort of begs the question of, you know, if you're going to second guess the Yankees and their decision-making, this is where it starts, you know, these sorts of questions. And as I said before, Brian Cashman would have very good answers for all of these questions and has in the past and dealt with it very directly. And they trust their model. They trust their process. And we'll see how it plays out over the next couple of years. But no question in this spot, 
over the last six years, since 2017, when you look at the decisions that could have been made, the decisions that weren't made, and how they're working out now, there's certainly room there for conversation, room for second guessing. The fans want, you know, bigger stars. They want a better roster. And these superstar players cost a lot of money. And the team, the Yankees used to spend far and away more than every other team. And now other teams have caught up to them in, in payroll and, you know, revenue in regards to payroll. So if fans, fans want superstar players, they wanted Bryce Harper in pinstripes. They wanted Manny Machado in pinstripes. Now there's free agents this year. Fans are going to want them on their team. And if, if the Yankees decide to go another way, then that, then fans are just going to have to, uh, either like it or don't, but the, the team is going to say, this is our budget. This is our, our payroll level and people are going to have to live with it. And not for nothing. I know I'm going back, you know, almost 20 years now, but when you, when you go with the blue chip star player model within the Yankees organization, they only really have one championship to show for it because there was a time when they were signing the Giambis and the Kevin Browns and the, the Johnny Damons, the Carl Pavanos didn't get them much. You know, uh, it was only after they splurged going into 2009 with those three players into Shara, Sabathia, Burnett. That's where they kind of clicked, captured the 09 title. But for the good part of the decade, following that model, didn't have much for, to show for it. Obviously, we're dealing in a different era now where they did pass on names like Harper and Machado. Uh, one guy that I think if you wanted to read, you know, between the lines from Brian Cashman on Friday, one guy that he probably doesn't want to have getaway is Aaron judge. He said it was an ownership decision. I think that's how big of a decision this is with Aaron judge hitting free agency. Free agency has already begun. Uh, the, the first big free agents off the board didn't take too long for the Mets to flex that wallet of theirs. And they sign their closer, Edwin Diaz to the largest, richest contract for a reliever ever five years, 102 million. So Diaz is back with the Mets in Queens for the long term. What kind of reliever market should we expect with this move to start this offseason? Or is this just an isolated reliever who's in a class of his own? I kind of believe Edwin Diaz is an outlier in that regard. And not only just because of his performance, but because of his popularity as well. I mean, the trumpets playing Timmy Trumpet and the whole scene that he brought to to, uh, City Field last year. So he's a little bit of an outlier. I think a lot of the models, if you look at the Yankees, they're coming off of the Zach Britton, Roldis Chapman signings that took up a little over 30 million of their payroll on a yearly basis. And they've gotten more out of finding somebody like Clay Holmes or Wandy Peralta. So yeah, I think the model for relievers is still kind of skewed out there where there's still undervalued players that, that are relievers that can be found and rehabilitated or redesigned, so to speak. And much like the Yankees did with Clay Holmes. I think that's probably more the model that teams are looking for, but Diaz is that good and he is that popular and he does have some star power. So uh, that's why he broke the bank. You know, I can understand why the Mets did that because they're, they're, they're wanting, they want to win right now. He's very popular, very successful, and they have the resources to spend. He might be the best inning for inning pitcher in the game. My one concern with the Mets. And I don't think they're making this move and then saying, well, that's all we're going to do. I I think this would be a mistake if you gave 
20 million to Edwin Diaz and then let Jacob deGrom and Brandon Nimmo and all their free agents, other free agents walk. This has to be part of a bigger structure as far as the Mets reassembling this team with all their free agents. I feel like it would be a mistake to, if to use 20 million on a reliever and then not address other positions. I think they will keep a lot of their guys. So we'll see how that goes. Let's come back to DeGrom in a moment, but to kind of just tie in the relief market here, was, was there anything that the postseason told us about the value of high-end relievers and how it could dictate to the type of contracts they receive in free agency? It's a great, it's a great point, Jack. I mean, we saw the tremendous numbers collectively from relievers across the board in postseason. I mean, maybe historically some of the best we've seen, certainly in recent memory as well, uh, the, the dominance of relievers coming out of the game, the swing and miss potential of a lot of relievers, the high velocity, the stuff velocity continues to go up the ladder year, year over year, the, the tremendous pitch design and, and the, the, the vertical break and movement on a lot of these pitches are, are just, just a, a cut above that we've ever seen before. So yes, the, it's not just about one or two great levers. It's about a, you know what, the overall depth, that's what Houston taught us. The overall depth of their pitching staff is what won them out. The, but the performance of their bullpen in particular, along with their starters, in particular, their top two starters, and, and Framber Valdez at the top of that list, uh, was what won them the championship. You know, the, the depth of the pitch, the depth of the pitch, pitching, the overall performance of their bullpen really was the thing that set them apart. The Astros with a 32% K rate throughout the postseason a bullpen, uh, an ERA of 229 for this for the uh, run of the playoffs. And uh, the bullpen ERA checked in at 083, which is pretty ludicrous for a, a whole staff. Now, what does that mean as far as setting the reliever market? I think what it does show you is that the Astros, it takes a village. And it you don't necessarily need to pin it all on one big free agent in the bullpen. You can cobble it together with, mid-level signings, guys from your farm system, a, a shrewd trade. So you look at the Astros bullpen and how they put their guys together. Yeah, Ryan Presley, he's at the top. But then you have guys that you, you picked up out of nowhere, like Rafael Montero, Brian Abreu. And so you need many standout relievers in order to get through October. We saw that last year, too, with the Braves, with the whole night shift. You know, they had their top four relievers carrying a lot of the load. But I think there's a, there's a lot of different ways to acquire talent for the bullpen. Relievers tend to be more volatile year to year. So you can kind of catch lightning in a bottle a little bit too. I mean, look at the Phillies. Yep. They, they had Sir Anthony Dominguez uh, coming off injury. Jose Alvarado was a great pickup. And even though they struggled for a lot of the year in the bullpen, it all came together in October. Yeah, there are a lot of ingredients to form like the recipe that you need for a successful bullpen in October. The, the the dude with the pedigree of having major success is just one small ingredient in all of that. You know, right place, right time, getting hot at the right time. The the people you believe within your farm system, like you're saying, James, it, it all takes uh, you take all that into account to 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 build that recipe for for success here. One of the moves that were, was announced like right before we started recording here was that Jacob deGrom did opt out of his deal with the Mets. There's a lot of stuff happening as we're recording this on Monday. deGrom opting out, uh, Carlos Rodon 
opting out. Xander Bogarts opted out. I know he's not a pitcher, but uh, the, the Yankees picked up Luis Severino's option for 2023. But on the subject of DeGrom here, does the way that the Mets handled Edwin Diaz's free agency, does it tell us anything about how they may approach the Grom situation. I thought James hit the nail on the head before when he said, you don't sign a reliever for 20 million a year at a record breaking contract. If you're not looking to keep the band together, so yeah. to speak. And you know, that was the, the the thinking behind signing Scherzer at this point in his career in his upper thirties, he still had a great year, but showed signs of breaking down here and there a bit and a little bit of weather in the postseason, but still built to win right now. So even though it, the model didn't work last year and the firewall of DeGrom and Scherzer that everybody talked about, that's the team you don't want to face in a short series. They can handle the random variance part of a short series and postseason. They give you that advantage. I think that still stands. I mean, if you're the, if you're the Mets and you're still looking to win right now, DeGrom's still a part of that. And I know they love him there. He's a big part of their franchise. What are the numbers going to come in at? How does that work? But I still like... Scherzer and DeGrom, especially now that you have Edwin Diaz back on the back end of the bullpen. And, you know, that's a team that's built to win right now. So if you let DeGrom walk somewhere else, you got to replace him with somebody else. And I don't know if you can count on, you know, Chris Bassett to slide up into the two hole right behind, uh, you know, uh, the Scherzer as far as rotations go or Taiwan Walker. I mean, those guys are great three, four, five starters. Start sliding them up in the two hole. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure if that that model works as well as Scherzer and DeGrom, even though it didn't work this year. I, I take my chances with those two at the top of rotation. Didn't he they signed- also opt out? Didn't Walker and, and Bassett just opt out? To, yeah, like the Mets Bassett's have some, some pretty big uh, vacancies in that rotation right now. With the Mets, though, like with having stupid money, like how to, to benefit the here and now, the short term, making sure the band sticks together, how much can you yield on the back end of a deal with Jacob deGrom? Like how much is too much for a guy who's been injured the last couple of years? Yeah, I think I think they're probably willing to flex their financial resources. And one way to do that is to go higher on the average annual value, pay the luxury tax now, but then you're not burdened with a, five to 10 year deal on the back end of players that are in their upper thirties or approaching 40 years old. I still say that you can still pay DeGrom top dollar for a shorter duration. And that's the way you flex. If you're the Mets, if you're not really worried about whether your luxury taxes, 10, 15, $20 million hit, that's how you flex. And in my mind, you go ahead and pay that luxury tax, pay these guys top dollar. And then on the back end, you, you don't have the extension or the, duration that can lock you up for years on down the road when they're past the point of being effective. Steve Cohen spent $8 million on a shark preserved in formaldehyde. Uh, (laughs) I don't think he's going to stop at, you know, this number or that number. The the sign shares are last year. You're going all in for the next few years. You get Buck Showalter. He's like, that's a, that's a win now kind of move too. You, you gotta, you gotta keep the band together. You gotta go all in. And like Coney said, I'll take my chances with DeGrom and Scherzer. It didn't work out in a short series this October. They'll be right up there with any other team in baseball if you if you run this back next year. Yeah, that phrase, run it back, been a little too common, in, in especially around New York sports. But that's one that I have a lot of faith in running back in, in 2023. DeGrom, 
Scherzer if it happens. And hey, now you have Diaz back as well. A lot of security right there if you're able to get the ground back in the fold. Yo, what's up, guys? Producer Dan here real quick to let you know about one of our awesome new sponsors here at Tone the Slab, and that is True Classic. And fellas, let me tell you, we have the perfect gift for your wish list. True Classic Tees is a gift for you, for her, and a great present for any guy in your life. They're on a mission to maximize men's confidence by making them look good. They give you the wide shoulder and tapered bottom look that we're all looking for, and the quality of the t-shirts is elite. From going to the gym to your first date, there's no better look. They offer menswear as well, ranging from polo to workout shirts to even boxer briefs designed to keep your boys feeling nice and comfortable. They have a pack builder on their website where you can customize the bundle you want and save even more. And for my big fellas out there, they have long options for the tall guys and up to XXXL. That's 3XL. Dad bods, got you covered. Rip bods, you know it. And your average Joe, yes, sir. Get yourself or someone you love the number one gift on Santa's list. Guys, True Classic has already helped over 2 million men look great in their tees. And now you can save big while you do so. Get 25% off True Classic with our exclusive link, trueclassic.com slash slab. And the discount does not stop there. You'll save even more during their site-wide sale. Support our show and check them out at trueclassic.com slash slab. All right, uh, this date in pitching history, back to our our main segments here uh, on, on Toe in the Slab as the postseason wraps up and we get into our offseason mold. This date in pitching history, James, what do you have? I'm going to roll it back a few days because now we're getting into the offseason. It's going to get a little light in this department. But so I'm going to roll it back a few days. So November 4th, 2001, 21 years ago, this past Friday, Game 7 of the World Series, one of the best games to end one of the best World Series ever. Roger Clemens outduels Kurt Schilling. Clemens, six and a third innings, one run, 10 Ks. Schilling, seven and a third, two runs, nine Ks. Two of the best pitchers of their era. It's tied in the top of the eighth. Alfonso Soriano leads off with a solo homer off Schilling. Later in the inning, Randy Johnson comes in out of the bullpen the night after he won game six and threw 104 pitches. He goes four up, four down to keep it a 2-1 game. Mariano Rivera breezed through the eighth with three Ks. It looks easy peasy. The Yankees are about to win their fourth straight championship. The Diamondbacks with a stunning rally in the ninth. Two runs to win it. Tony Womack, game-tying double. Luis Gonzalez's bloop walk-off single for a shocking win. And that World Series was one of the best of my lifetime and probably one of the best ever. David, where were you for that World Series? Where were you watching that? I was in my apartment in Manhattan watching it. You know, I just come off of a year with the Red Sox in 2001. And I was um, thinking about retirement. I actually was going to retire at that point. I took a year off after 2001, took 2002 off, tried to make a comeback in 03 with the Mets, which derailed my Yes Network career for a while. I went on probation from George Steinbrenner for about four or five years before I could earn my way back. But that that's a, that's a story for another day. But yeah, I remember watching it. It was just unbelievable we were all in the aftermath of 9-11 we all saw the emotional reactions in the crowd the president bush's first pitch i mean the, the storylines one after another were just just remarkable then the high emotion the comeback wins the big home runs late tino martinez just i think that's when tino martinez earned his way into monument park right there i think that series right there almost and certainly collectively he was a great player and had a lot of great numbers but uh, when you talk about the boy, those big hits in that series, just unreal. This is something that I always think about whenever I hear the 2001 World Series being talked about, like Alfonso Soriano's home run late in that game. 
if Mariano Rivera does what Mariano Rivera has always done, he closes it out. The Yankees win another world title. Like where is Alfonso Soriano placed in Yankees legend? I mean, he's, he is a celebrated Yankee. He comes to the stadium every so often people cheer for him, but like, where would his place be? in Yankees history, if that home run stood as the difference maker in a seven game series for the fall classic. A little, a little unfair, about. right? No, it's a yeah. little unfair. Cause it wasn't his fault. You know, he mm-hmm. did his job, but, you know, we're still talking about it. He was a great player, had a great career and tremendous talent. I just, the way he bounced around the bases when he hit that home run, what a wiry, tremendous athlete. He was just fun to watch. He was fun. And that home run, like you said, it would really go down as one of the big home runs in Yankee history, one of the big home runs in World Series history. Would have been a game winner in the eighth inning of game seven in that classic game, in that classic series. It goes up there with um, maybe like Andy Chavez's catch. It's just like this all-time great play that is immediately washed out because of the result that happened just moments later. True. Not a good comparison. All right, uh, three up, three down. Well, we, I didn't discuss this with you guys before we started recording, so I'm going to get you uh, either on your toes, off guard, whatever it is. Uh, three up, three down as we, you know, like I said, start the offseason rundown here. What do you guys have? To me, it's, it's still got to go right to what I started with. <clears throat> it's um, changes underway, the new rules. It is, you know, we, we've talked about it quite a bit on this podcast as we've, we've heard about these rules are going to be implemented now we're into the offseason. Now everything's impacted. The decision-making's impacted. You talk about the bullpen. How do you find these relievers? Who do you sign? Who do you not? You, how quick, how fast you work is a big part of it now. This, this is sort of has to be interjected into the decision-making. Uh, pace of play is going to be a big deal. If you watch the Arizona Fall League, which just had the All-Star game, I think, yesterday, uh, the pitch clock, it, it, you just see the pitcher get on the mound. You see the batter maybe step out for a fraction of a second, step back in. There's a crispness to the play that, that is very, that is very appealing. And I think there's going to be some pain. There's going to be some players that are used to their ways, especially pitchers that want to take their time. A lot of hitters are in that realm too. As you can see the wheels spinning with a lot of hitters, when they step out of the box, readjust their gloves, everybody's got their own routine. That's going to have to change in a big way. And I'm anxious to see you know, I was watching them, you know, as I said, the Arizona Fall League, just to kind of get a key on it. It's nice. It's it's very, very uh, appealing to watch that you see this this pace of play get picked up. It is a big deal. And running could be a big deal, too. Bigger bases. We see it in the minor leagues. Uh, a lot of the – the, there's more emphasis on speed and athleticism. Going to be interesting to see how that kind of filters into the decision-making process. Athletes who can move and pitchers who work fast. I don't know if I'm in the minority with this. Like, yeah, I want to see the end result and what it's like when everyone gets the other side. But also, I'm fascinated by watching the transition. Like, I'm I'm going to be fascinated watching batters look and feel rushed and saying, oh, you know, better pick it up. Let's go. Let's clean it up here. Like, that, that's, that's going to excite me watching baseball to start next season. I don't know if that's just me or not. Well, it'll be an interesting... Um little experiment to see how people deal with it in real time i feel like april uh there'll be there'll be moments there'll be there'll be a hitter or a pitcher that decides a game you know a walk-off walk because the pitcher let the clock expire or a guy gets struck out for the last out of a game because he wasn't in the box or whatever um 
but I think I do feel like players will adapt very quickly. And then we'll, by the time, you know, it won't take long before, you know, most people are like, Oh, what were we all worried about? You know, what we thought it was going to be total chaos, but I think it'll be in, in, I think pretty quickly players will adapt. Just the tip of the iceberg too. I mean, automated strikes on is next, or at least a hybrid challenge system is probably going to be next. We've seen that on the minor league level. Actually, uh, I think it was Jason Dominguez, the Yankee prospect, is on video on social media for, for being able to use that challenge call. Hitters yes. in the box, gets a low gets a low pitch called strike on him. You see his immediate emotional reaction right to the top of his helmet. I'm challenging that pitch. That's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. The player on the field has the responsibility. He was correct. I think he earned a walk in that spot. Uh, I believe that was the case out of the end, what the, what the outcome was, but nonetheless, I I like, I like that. I mean, there's, you know, James and I have talked about this. There's more pitches that are called strikes that are pitches outside the strike zone than vice versa pitches that are called balls that are inside the strike zone. You want to help the hitters out a little bit. You you got the pace of play working now with the pitch clock. Theoretically could help the hit the, the, the pitchers. Well, you know what, A, a challenge system or some sort of, hybrid system can be a big deal for players especially in big points in the game late you can go to the top of your helmet and challenge it or a pitcher on the mound can challenge too hey wait a minute that's strike three i want to challenge that pitch and you only get so many challenges that's next and i think i think it's inevitable that we're going to see some some sort of hybrid model in terms of automated strike zone enter into the game not next year but in the in the near future the process is very clean you watch it it's like a challenge in tennis they put the the thing on the, on the big screen. And, and it, it is, it's very, it's very quick. And you just see the pitch come in and then you see whether it's in the box or not. And then bing, bing, and you move on. So it's uh, I feel like that, that would be a, um, a useful um, addition as well. It's remarkably similar to the technology that you see in tennis. And that technology has been around for well over a decade now in that sport. I'm, I'm a little ignorant on the subject guys. Is, is it a case where a player has maybe one, challenge in you know in his chamber that he can unleash every game is there a number that's already been set i think teams get three okay for the game all right i think so yeah, no, yeah that's exactly right i mean it's it's up to negotiation but yeah i mean you can set it wherever you want it yeah. it's not you know it's not unlimited obviously because then that would slow down the game but you know three is about right three challenges most teams would save it for big spots or later in the game potentially just like the challenge system in baseball now for overturning calls, you only get a couple of game, uh, same in football. And the minute you use them and you're not successful, you lose them. So yeah, there, there is some risk reward involved, but it, it's something that I think as, as James said, that the, it's a pleasing to the fans too. Anything you can get the fans interacted with, show them on the scoreboard, what just happened yeah. and they see it for themselves and you're going to see the, the crowd reactions. It kind of lends itself. I think this particular rule kind of lends itself to, the crowd understanding what's going on and getting into it and actually seeing what happens. Whereas a lot of times in baseball, you're left in the dark. What are we reviewing here? This is the first year where the umpires actually had the mic on where they had to explain something to the fans like NFL does about what happened, what we're reviewing, uh, you know, anything you can involve the fans more, more with in baseball, because it's hard to see if you're sitting up in right field in the upper deck, you can't see where that pitch was. You throw it on the scoreboard, you certainly see it. And then you, you know, you get, you, you involve everybody into the game that way. All right, James, what do you have? Three up, three down. All right, a dispatch from the Korean series. Postseason baseball still going on. Um, 
Sung Min Kim reports from uh, from the Korean series. We've uh, met him at the stadium before, but he said um, the SSG Landers were down four nothing in the bottom of the eighth inning of Game Five of the Korean series, which was tied two two. They scored two in the eighth. Then in the bottom of the ninth, forty year old Kim Kang Min hits a walk off three run homer to turn a four two loss into a five four win. The Landers take a three two lead in the Korean series. Check out the video online if you can find it uh it was a pretty cool moment and uh goes to show even even on the other side of the world we got postseason baseball exciting stuff exciting moments they are continuing to happen here so yeah you could be bummed about the end of the world series but you just had the fall stars the arizona fall league the korean world series going on now as well this is a good time i guess for me to kind of give you a quick run through this is what i was going to bring up three up three down just a, a quick run through of the important offseason dates that are coming up immediately so november the 10th later on this week any free agent can sign anywhere so that begins on november the 10th this thursday uh the week of november 14th awards are announced november 18th it's the non-tender deadline for teams and certain players and then november 20th the deadline for free agents to accept or reject uh, the qualifying offer, and we'll we'll touch on that qualifying offer, who could be eligible, and whether or not they will uh, accept or reject. Maybe that week we'll do that. Um, but uh, a lot of interesting candidates there. A lot of obvious ones for teams, and there there probably are a couple of interesting candidates that could uh, take them up on that qualifying offer. But hey, guys, uh, postseason's over, off season's already begun with this Diaz signing, so uh, we are not resting here on uh on toeing the slab so uh drink your coffee gentlemen looking james, forward to it james you got a trip coming up i'm going to italy going to rome and florence uh so i will not be on the show next week but i will be back um on the 18th i think so i'd be back for just after the awards are announced so the the cy young announcement um is going to be November 16th. So circle that on your calendar, Perfect. folks. Uh, Wednesday the 16th is when they will announce the AL and NL Cy Young Award winners. All right. All right, Reaver Darchi, James. <laughs> David, good day to you. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode, guys. Please rate, review, subscribe. It's the best way that you could so show your uh, support for the show here. For David Cohn, for James Smythe, our excellent producer, Dan Rourke, I'm Justin Shackle. We will talk to you next week on Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn, a production of John Boy Media. Take care. <laughs>